Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and Mayu, what's going on, Austin, man? What are you up to? Happy Valentine's Day, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Belated Valentine's Day, because we're filming this on the Friday. What'd you get, uh, Lillian? Yeah, I went all out this year for sure. So uh, I up. bought uh, no, I bought a canvas like poster, you know, those thick canvas boards of our photo and Florence when I proposed her. So yeah, you can yeah. hang it above like the bed frame. And we can also use it for a wedding because you know how there's pictures and shit during yeah, the yeah. wedding. Yeah, um, yeah. So we can use that there. Multi, multifunctional flowers. <laughs> and what was the last thing? Um, and then like some dessert cake from some French place, though. That's your idea of going all out? You didn't even get her like a Louis bag or anything, bro. Oh, uh, no, no, none of that, man. <laughs> uh, we got we to gotta put that money into the wedding, not into a session, <laughs> it's it? a designer. First <laughs> session, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but uh, on the real estate end of things, what I've been up to, I just closed on my flip that I mentioned earlier. It's, it's going to be a cash purchase in Windsor. So the renovations have actually started today. So we'll see how that goes as the market, for some reason, seems to be heating up yeah. or is, is heated at the moment. And just to get this clear, when we say that, it doesn't mean that things are selling anywhere near peak prices because it's not. What we're saying is, is that there is some buying action out there for good properties, right? Yeah. And even properties that have been sitting on the market for a while, you're seeing some offers being placed on it. Not for every property, but for a lot of properties, right? So yeah. it's a good time for me to just finish the renovations quick and then sell it and see how that goes. So I got my quote. It's somewhere around 38K for all of the renos included with HST. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see how that goes, man. Two-week reno. So hopefully we can get it done. The five plus... Yeah is almost done renovations. And then that fourplex in North Bay that I was looking at selling, if you guys remember that, the buyer wasn't able to close on it on time. So there's some struggles on that end of things. So what we ended up doing is, is that we ended up coming up with a vendor take back. So I'm going to be doing a VTB with him for 70 or 75K while he finishes the renos and then has it rented out. Because I know the building really well. It's vacant. The ideal is not to do a VTB because I would have preferred some of those funds to fund some of this flip. But now I'm like more cash poor now, right? Because yeah, like yeah. I had to, <laughs> my money's yeah. still tied into that other sale and, and this one as well. But interestingly enough, man, with that fourplex, the appraisal came back, not at what I sold it for, but like much less. And the reason being is, is because they were comping it against asset value of other properties that sold. And since there were no fourplexes that sold nearby this area, they expanded the region. So it included some of the worst areas of North Bay, right? Yeah. And also on top of that, if you look at the the income of the fourplexes that sold, it was like 3K a month, the income, right? Way Monthly income. Yeah, so yeah. on the market. When I purchased this fourplex, it was rented at 3.6K a month, right? Which is why I bought it in the 400s. Did it come under what you bought the fourplex at or under what you were selling it no, at? No, no, no. It came, it came under what I was selling it at. And some banks turned it down because they thought it was fraud. Yeah, here's the thing. The appraiser is looking at it as well and going, this guy bought it two months ago for this amount of money. And therefore, like, how much, how much more could it really be worth? It's kind of bullshit. And it's the same. Yeah, I was literally doing a presentation on this yesterday. And I was like, this entire concept of having to wait like three months, six months, eight months to refinance, it's more so. Because the banks, like to us, it makes sense conceptually. Like we understand it, right? But if they get like thousands of transactions per month, we are like less than like two percent. Or investors that are doing like what we're doing is less than two percent of their client base, and they just don't understand in a downward market how people are making that much of a lift, right? It's yeah. interesting, man. I've had private lenders turn down an assignment deal, or they're just like, we're not going to find the assignment price because like, how could someone get it under contract and then paper flip it thirty days or like a week later for like a thirty grand profit? I'm just like, man. I don't have time to explain this shit to you. Like you're, you're not going to change your ways. It is what it is. Let's just yeah. move on and just fund the purchase at the original price, right? So that's a risk that people need to be aware of now in, in the market. Because again, man, yeah. like the guy was comping it against things with the income that was less than what I bought it at, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. which is why I bought it in the 400s, right? But yeah. no, you're right. I think people just need to be more conservative and have a little bit more liquid funds. If you're planning on taking everything private, 
Think of another way now, because not yeah. there's not many lenders who are willing to go 100% loan to value on private. Yeah, it's just like a familiarity bias or whatever they call that, right? Like banks, like lenders, everyone. The shit we do is not what they're the most familiar with. It's what we are super mm-hmm. familiar with. So we just can't comprehend why they don't understand it. But when you think about it on a mass scale, like what we're doing is like a very small percentage of it, right? Um, so that's cool, man. Um, the, one thing I'll, I guess I'll talk about on the mortgage side that you kind of alluded to earlier as well is we're seeing so many like buyers jumping back in now that are losing out on multiple offers. And I had a meeting with a realtor group yesterday and we were just talking about this. And I was like, look, people were qualifying. Historically, people have always qualified on the variable rate, right? Because that is the lower rate. And so they'll look at the payments based on that and it helps them a little bit more to qualify for a little bit more. Recently, everyone's been qualifying on fixed because fixed is quite a bit lower. Like we're talking like a yeah. percentage and a half lower than the variable, right? Mm-hmm. And so the fucked up thing now is the fix is starting to go up, right? So people are yeah. going to once again start to see their borrowing capacity drop a little bit. I'm not really sure what's happening in the real estate market because maybe people are running on like old prequals that they have like approved, right? But this could maybe be like a little bounce in the market before things kind of flatten out a little bit more, but we'll see who gives first supply. Yeah. It's it's all supply. It's all supply side. Right. Um, As long as sellers are, it's it's one of those weird things where, so we spoke about this in our rise event. It's it's one of those weird housing recessions. If you want to call it usually with the housing recession, people flood the market with listing this housing recession, quote unquote, the listings are so tight. Sellers not flooding the market. It's that game of Thrones line. Yo, what was it? Hold the the line. (laughs) <laughs> I don't watch no Game of Thrones. I'm a Breaking Bad boy. No, no Game of Thrones. <laughs> Whatever. Hold the, Anyways, line. Hold the line. Um, we've been going on long enough. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Did you want to say something else, Mayu, before I jumped no, in? No, just that I'm I'm cash poor, just like you, man. Um, I'm funding in total um, about almost 300k in renovations right now. So like very oh, cash God. poor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing the nineplex. We we had two units vacate there. So we're doing that. That's costing about like 50 grand and the cottage and then the triplex. And yeah, it's it's a cash drain, man. It's fucked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we'll see. Yeah. Well, the good thing is, is that we still have cash on the sideline that we haven't divvied up yet from a couple yeah, of deals. So there's that. But I almost <laughs> never look at that as, yeah, as yeah, cash. So yeah. it's a good thing for us. It, a lot, it forces us to be at least liquid in some capacity. Yeah, yeah. The key is to lie to ourselves about how much money is actually available, right? And just forget about that. And it's like, oh, cool. Like I have an emergency emergency fund, right? So anyways, yeah. let's jump into today's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now let's jump into the podcast. We have Karsten Howe who has over 12 years of sales leadership experience and expertise in scaling businesses, especially on the sales side. And now he's jumped into real estate investing with a huge splash. Not only has he acquired a few multifamily buildings in the real estate space, but he's also proven himself to be an expert in the Airbnb space. Now, there's a lot of doom and gloom into Airbnb at the moment, but Carson is one of those operators that'll succeed no matter the market condition. So we go into how he systemizes Airbnb some tips and tricks on how to survive in today's market condition. And even if you were just to follow the guy on Instagram, you'll see that he's still getting full bookings, even in current markets. So this is an episode you definitely don't want to miss out on, especially if you're looking to get into the short-term rental game. Hope you guys enjoy. Leave us the five-star review and time to jump in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest. And I've been trying to have you on for a minute, Karsten, but you've been ducking and dodging, but we finally <laughs> got it to happen. We're joined with Karsten Howe. Not Austin, Karsten. <laughs> that doesn't even sound like Austin. But no, <laughs> I don't Karsten. know. <laughs> Karsten, for, for anyone that doesn't know you, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? We've all known each other for quite some time, but you know, I'm sure there's people that don't. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. Definitely not trying to duck you, <laughs> Austin. <laughs> But yeah, it's been busy, right? Lots of things happening, trying to grow the business. But yeah, basically, I have a nine to five. I'm a tech sales director for a company called Meltwater. We're in the social media space, but also a real estate investor and also have a side hustle in terms of Airbnb arbitrage business. So yeah, that's kind of a little bit about what I currently do. I had no idea you started a full-time job. That's crazy, man, given what you guys are up to. And I think that was also a pretty humble introduction to yourself. But why don't we dig into how you first got into space, kind of summarizing what was like two years on the investing side heavy until you got into Airbnb? Yeah, I would say so. Definitely like right when COVID started, when everyone was starting to work from home, I stumbled across some articles and some YouTube videos, one of which was Austin's article about how he did so many burrs to build his cash flow 
and financial independence. So that really got me started actually into trying to scale a portfolio. So yeah, definitely started with Burrs in terms of buying, renovating, refinance, rent and repeat. And social media is a funny thing. Like you see everyone on social media being so successful. And then I was like seven, eight months into my first couple of Burrs and I realized, okay, this is not as easy as it's drummed up to be. And yeah, like it's hard to build cash flow with long-term rentals. And now it's even harder, obviously, with the interest rates. So that's why I pivoted a little bit this year, beginning of this year, and decided to start doing some Airbnb arbitrage. And yeah, I've been lucky in terms of being able to scale that up. We have now like 20 listings. So it's been an interesting journey, just a real estate standpoint. Airbnb arbitrage, I would say, isn't even really investing, right? It's really just like starting a business. So yeah, it's been quite interesting for sure. Awesome. So a lot to dig down there. Since you haven't really even started real estate too long ago and you've scaled at an impressive rate, I think it makes sense to really just start at the beginning and we can kind of go in a chronological order. So let's talk about you first got introduced to real estate. What were your next steps to take action? Because a lot of people end up seeing others on social media doing well, and then it just kind of stops there, right? They didn't know where to go from there. So what did you do to, I guess, uh, start learning? And and when did you first take action on your first property and walk us through that process? Yeah, I think first thing, maybe talk about a little bit about the motivation. Once I started following yourself and others, I found like a whole new community. And for me, I think I was ready for a new challenge. In the corporate world, I've definitely been successful. And I think it was time for a new challenge to be really good at something. So I think that was like the motivation. Maybe it was like even less about like cash flow and money. I was like, oh, this is cool. I want to be the best of the best. And for me, I'm not 21. So I think I wanted to speed up my progress. So I did look for a mentor. I didn't want to make too many mistakes and kind of go backwards. So I think that helped in terms of helping me take action and really learn A to Z, how to run numbers, how things really work, how to find off-market deals and stuff like that. Gotcha. I think that's good. So you talk about mentoring. It's really just to compress time. It's not something that you couldn't have done on your own, but to kind of compress the time, you went that route. That makes sense. So you jumped into the investing side uh, and I'm assuming um, just because you're a little bit older, right? You'd probably had a little bit of capital that you'd kind of accumulated. So you're deploying a little bit of your own capital. How did you jump into investing? What markets did you choose? What worked? What didn't? Give us a quick rundown on some of your projects there. Sure. Yeah, that was definitely one decision, like which market to focus on. Everyone says like, don't pick 20 markets. You can't be just be looking everywhere. Like you got to know your city, know your market. So decided to pick Brantford back in 2020. Back then, Hamilton had gone up a lot. Like Kitchener, Waterloo had gone up a lot. And kind of Brantford was the one that didn't really go up as much, I felt. So yeah, pick that. It was relatively close to Toronto where I live. So in my head, it was okay. If something happened, I could probably still make it to the properties. So yeah, pick Brantford. Connected with some realtors in the city, letting them know what I'm trying to do. Looked at Kijiji ads, all that good stuff. So it was just like a lot of groundwork, I'd say, to get to know the city, get to know good parts of the city, bad parts. In Bradford, there aren't too many good parts, <laughs> actually. <laughs> but yeah, like that's how you get started with doing some research for sure. Gotcha. So you dug down and you due diligence, understanding the city. I think that's really important, especially for a first time investor, because if you're solely looking at the numbers, like these bad neighborhoods are always going to have better numbers than some of the better neighborhoods in the city, right? So it's good you familiarize yourself with the city first and then took a step in analyzing the numbers once you figure out which locations you wanted to invest in. So that first deal, can you kind of walk us through it? How was that process like? I know that when you were bidding or searching for your first deal, it was a pretty hot market, if I'm not mistaken, right? So Walk us through. Was it a clean offer? Was it sight and scene? Was it on the MLS? How did you negotiate the deal? What type of rentals? Let's walk through the first project and then we can almost kind of fast forward to what you're doing now. Yeah. First project was actually uh, from a wholesaler. That was actually, again, one reason maybe why mentorship is good. Like my mentor, Corey McKinnon, that's who a mentor was back then. He actually brought me the deal. He was like, hey, you're looking at Brantford. Like this wholesaler just sent me a deal. It looks decent. Like it's not going to be a home run, but it gets you on base, so to speak. So yeah, I just trusted my mentor on that first deal. And there was a duplex. The upper was vacant. So I could set my own rents. 
So yeah, I just went forward with that one. I think more interesting is probably like my second one, which was one I found through a realtor. It was a triplex, priced really low. We got an offer accepted. We kind of dropped the price by another 25K actually for the offer. And man, it it was a house that was in really bad shape. Mm. I didn't even know it was in that bad shape. So I think, yeah, with that deal, like it took a full year to renovate, to get tenants out. So that was like a really good experience. Like you got to be careful what you get into. I think I was lucky in terms of the market back then was like still going up. So there was ability for me to spend a bit more money on renovations and whatnot. But um, yeah, like five minutes within walking into that house, I'd never seen a house in that bad shape because I kind of put in an offer sight unseen because of the market, obviously with an inspection clause. During the inspection, it was like first time seeing the house and there was mess everywhere there was like seven kids in one of the <laughs> in one of the units running around oh my god seven kids oh, so, okay, okay i thought you said semi kid like, what <laughs> okay. so yeah within five minutes of being in that house i was like okay i don't think i should buy this but then the inspector just kept inspecting the house so i was like okay i just kept walking around i guess and i don't know why but i just like pulled trigger on it and then kind of leaned on my power team back then to help me get the tenants out, do the renovations and whatnot. So it was fully tenanted. Paralegal, did you do it yourself? A property manager? How did you go about that? Yeah, my property manager helped me. That one family that had the seven kids in there, the boyfriend or husband, I don't know who he is, but he was a rough dude. So I did not have the guts to go <laughs> negotiate cash fees. Uh, so yeah, it took a good six months. We just kept like hounding them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end, he actually, like, I don't know if he deliberately did it, but he tried to flood the washroom, which then the water led to our newly renovated uh, ooh, main floor ooh. unit. So we had to get the city to go, like, shut off the water in the house. These are the, I think. That's the shit you do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These are the trials and tribulations you deal with, yeah, right? Yeah. When you deal with real estate and trying to, like, fix up properties. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's why I say, like, that one's probably, like, my first deal that i had to manage from start to finish and so it was quite so almost jumping forward because i want to make sure we, we dig into the airbnb side so you had the Bradford project you had the triplex uh where was the triplex in Bradford, and then what were the other they figured you had some other stuff then I did a fourplex in welland okay that was a lot easier deal renovated two units kept two units as is and then rented it out yeah so those were like three deals i did in that one year Okay, before we get into that, from those three deals, each one of them were a bit different, right? Like some of them you've obviously taken, quote unquote, I'll call it risk inheriting tenants, some of them vacant units, other one from a wholesaler. From your three property acquisitions, what have you learned about yourself from an investor? Like, are there certain aspects that you would avoid now, given that you've gone through the experiences? Or are you okay with taking on all of these headaches, if it's profitable on the other side, how has that changed your investment philosophy? Yeah, I think a lot of people say this in the community. It's like, you need to make money on the buy, right? So like, thankfully the Brantford deal, we bought it at a good enough price that there was still enough cushion, so to speak. But yeah, if I had to pick in, I don't think I would want to take on all those challenges. Especially the house was in such a rough shape. Like even the renovations were a hassle. Austin, I'm, I'm curious, what are you not willing to deal with? Usually when someone asks that, you, what are you not willing to deal with, Austin? <laughs> Me? Yeah, you. <laughs> uh, I think it's the same. Oh, I don't know. Like I was going to say tenants, but like I do deal with them. Yeah, you but deal with them. I think that scares I, me the worst are probably tenants. I agree. That's what scares me. Would you agree, Carson? Are you on the tenant side or are you on the property damage side? I think it's the tenant side, especially in Ontario. Like, you know, you just never know. Yeah. Like you're rolling the dice. But then again, you know, if you find a good enough deal and you're okay with inheriting tenants, even if cash flows, then maybe it's okay. And that was maybe one of the reasons why I went forward with that triplex deal was when I ran my numbers, it's like, okay, this thing doesn't bleed money. If the tenants don't make, uh, okay. even though the house in a wreck. Yeah. yeah right? no, I think that's key. Uh, what Carson is just saying there, which is like, if you had bought that property with the tenants in there and you were unable to negotiate cash for keys, which like so many people just assume 
that they're going to just walk in there and get vacancy. It's like, no, man, it's not fucking yeah. guaranteed. Like, it might not happen yeah. at all. I'm like, like, if they ask you for like 20, 30, 40 grand, I might be like, yo, fuck off to stay here and like, <laughs> I'll leave my deposit in here for a little bit longer, right? Exactly. That's good. So, you jumped from there into the fourplex and then you jumped into the Airbnb space. So, tell me a little bit about how you went about that switch, what you did, what attracted you to Airbnb. I think Airbnb is super sexy now, right? Like, I think everyone wants to be in Airbnb. Everyone like, has heard about the model and so on, right? But I'm just curious the homework you did at that time. I think it was just, again, people on social media that I was following, right? And you see like, oh, wow, it's actually a, a strategy or a business model that can generate a lot of cash flow. Mm-hmm. So that really interested me because, again, all that work that I put in to get those three properties in my head, when I first started, I was like, oh, yeah, like if I could acquire like 30, 40 units, I'll be like, financially independent. But again, you get into it and it's like, okay, it's not like that. So yeah, I want to create an active business with active income. That's what really got me intrigued. So that's why I decided to explore that path. Yeah. I think a lot of the times with long-term rentals, it's the 30, 40 units in a short period of time usually doesn't pan out the way that you you think it would on an Excel calculator, right? It's more so like, I feel like the people that truly live off of real estate and quote unquote passive income are the people that have owned it for like, 10, 20 years, haven't refinanced, mortgage gets paid down and like rents go up and now they're like really good, right? But Airbnb is definitely a faster approach to getting there. So correct me if I'm wrong, but you jumped into Airbnb in the US, right? Like you never really did it here or did you start off here and then go there? No, I started here. Yeah, same idea. I kind of like did some research, picked a market, which was Burlington, Hamilton as a market to start off with. So yeah, started in Canada for sure, yeah. How were the numbers at that time? How have you seen things change? How did you go about getting into Airbnb? Did you do arbitrage or? Yeah. Yeah, we did arbitrage. Kind of had to have my sales pitch down in terms of how to convince landlords, right? And then you just go through. I don't know. For me, I just went started going through Kijiji ads, looking for nicely renovated units. I targeted, I guess, duplexes to start off. So back then, basically renting a duplex would be between $3,800 to $4,000 a month and then try and make a profit on that. So yeah, those are some of the numbers in terms of rent side, right? 38 to 4,000 for both up, down duplex, well renovated. And then in terms of process, like, yeah, it took me like four months to actually on and off trying to get my first property. It took me four months to get my first one. But then once you get your first landlord to agree to it, I think that helped me get some additional confidence. And then quickly, the second, third, fourth deal came. And then before you know it, you're like, oh, crap, every month I have $15,000 in rent that I'm, <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm in the hook for. So yeah. Yeah. So I guess one thing that's really impressed me, Karsten, with kind of your journey with the Airbnb arbitrage is, is that Sales is one thing, right? Like having the script down, but most people can figure out the script. Yours is like just knacking down on the cold calling, which 99% of people don't do, right? Because it's not motivating to pick up the phone, right? You can, you can buy a course and get the script from another arbitrager, but you can't convince or force someone to just like start picking up the phone and cold calling, which is what ultimately led to your success in the arbitrage world. <laughs> that being said, now when you're cold calling people on Kijiji, you're not really, it's, it's different than real estate. In real estate, you cold call or not cold call. You find deals that you like, you run the number, then you'll call the agent and try to get an offer in. In this case, the rents are pretty much almost identical across a board, the board, right? A two bedroom is going to rent the same as another two bedroom in Hamilton. Like it's all the same. So how are you underwriting your deals? Or are you just like cold calling? And if you do get someone to agree, then boom, that's going to be the deal for you. It's not really as much about underwriting any particular unit. I think my first deal, I wasn't complete. Like I, I, so I do research on AirDNA high level to understand if it's a viable market, what the average daily rate is, what kind of is the average occupancy. So I do that kind of high level research, but then I go into Airbnb and actually look at every single listing, two bed, three bed, four bed, see how people are pricing their listing and then see if their listing is getting booked. So I create a spreadsheet and do all that research to better understand the market. So after doing that, that's when I have a better idea of how much rent I should pay. And basically, I think an easy rule is if you can earn two 
and like it's going to be a profitable deal. That's kind of what I did on my first deal, right? So my first deal actually was just the upper floor of a home, three bed, two bath. It was like $2,200 a month. So like in my, I was like, okay, I don't feel like I can make $4,400 a month. Like the numbers don't say that, but like you got to mind, like it was worth the risk. Like it wasn't like crazy sum of money. So I was like, okay, like I just got to, like this guy is okay to do it. So I'm going to dive in and like try this out. Mm-hmm. Sorry, so my internet cut out a couple of points there, but I think you said two times your rent is what you should collect or aim to collect in Airbnb revenue. So he was asking for 2200 You jumped in, even though you thought maybe you wouldn't be able to hit 4400 probably more so because you wanted like the experience, you wanted the proof of concept, and you can then leverage this to pitch to other landlords, right? Hey, look what I did with this property. Look how great it is. Yeah, exactly. It had been four months. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the, yeah, yeah. Until this, finally, this guy was okay to do it. So I went for it. So then how did you, where did you go from there? I guess even that first one, how much did it cost you to furnish it? And then was there a lag period until you actually started making money on Airbnb? Like, was there like holding costs for like one or two or three months until you started seeing some revenue come in? Yeah. So as with probably all things, probably made every mistake I could in the book with the first one. Like we went over budget for furniture. Like I didn't keep. You said three beds, right? You said three beds? Yeah. Three beds, two beds. How much roughly does that cost you? Uh, it should cost you $15,000 all in, including like labor, people assembling furniture and everything. But like that one almost cost us 20,000. Didn't really have a good handle on the designer. She just ended up spending additional money. I only knew about at the end. As an example, I hired people to assemble furniture and then they didn't show up common. Like, I guess those things always happen, but like, yeah, as with every first when you're first trying things out, like, yeah, probably like every mistake in the book. <laughs> and how long until I guess it started to make you money? And how were like, if we talk about the first six months, was it one month to kind of assemble the furniture, maybe two months and just get it ready and go on Airbnb? And then um, was it a little bit slow when you first got on or how did that look like? Yeah, I think it was me again, learning and understanding how to price things. And so, yeah, it, it took me good to three months to get it up to where it needed to be. Right. There's definitely a lag. But then the second, third, fourth deals, like there wasn't much of a lag. Like got understood the pricing because of the first one. And then it was a lot easier from there. But usually like a arbitrage deal, you should aim to get your investment back in like worst case eight months. Mm-hmm. Because of the first one, we overspent on the furniture, we went over budget, this, that, and the other. Like it took me, I think, nine months to get all the money back. Yeah. But now if I look at the second, third, fourth deals, it was like six month payback. Interesting. Okay. And uh, kind of moving forward from there on the arbitrage side of things, I know you're doing many different things. You started off with, I guess, like simple three bedroom units. Since then, you've expanded geographically. I think you've also, correct me if I'm wrong, have you explored Lux or not yet? Yeah. Okay. Probably like halfway through the year, I decided to like actually partner with Aaron Bay. We had always chatted on and off. And then um, he mentioned he had some interest in getting into Luxes. So, and he mentioned, hey, Vancouver should be a good market in Canada. Like there aren't that many Lux markets in Canada. Probably Vancouver is maybe the only one. So yeah, like started calling some realtors on the West Coast for Luxes and um yeah, we actually have three Luxes on the West Coast that we manage. So yeah. what is Lux actually before yeah. we dive deep into it? Lux, these are $8 million plus properties that we've convinced the owner that this is a better model. And similar in BC, people are open to it because again, the tenant laws are very skewed towards the tenants. So $8 million plus properties. So these are like uh, properties that have pools, hot tubs, everything you can think of. It's very important that Luxes have amenities and then five plus bedrooms, probably some of these properties are like gated. Yeah. Like what you would envision a luxury property would be like. So I think we got to break that down a little bit because I'm kind of surprised you said 8 million. I would assume like even like a $3 million house is pretty fucking Lux to me, but I guess you guys are going for really big ones. So what does a pitch for a Lux look like compared to a normal short-term rental, right? Because I'm assuming you're not dealing directly with the owner. You might be, might not be. What do kind of like the arbitrage numbers look like on Lux 
I got more questions, but we'll dig into that after I don't want to over ask. Yeah. And that being said, just to add on to that with the pitch, who are these owners that have vacant $8 million yeah. mansions, right? And how do you find them? <laughs> yeah, you're totally correct on that. You're not dealing with directly with owners, right? So it's actually, I figured out after, again, doing a lot of calls and a lot of rejections that really these owners are hiring the realtor or the agent as also their property manager. So they've really offloaded it to the realtor. And it's really up to the realtor to present to the owner, like, hey, I found this person. This is what they're going to do. And I'm comfortable with it. So we're going to, like, we should sign this mm. uh, type of a deal. I haven't figured it out, but I'd love a way to get direct access to owners. It'd make it a lot easier. But yeah, it's just like getting on the side of the realtor, like pitching them on why this is better for their client, how we're going to take care of the property. And again, why this would be a value for them. So what is a <laughs> monthly lease on an $8 million property? <laughs> yeah, what are the costs? Let's just break down the costs: furnishing, yeah. leasing, everything. Yeah, because like furnishing must also be an arm and a leg. There's no way you're yeah. putting IKEA in there. <laughs> so we were lucky with two of the luxes; like they came furnished, yeah. so that helps a lot. But yeah, like the first one we did rents over twenty thousand dollars a month, and we spent well over six figures furnishing at home, even though it was furnished. No. Our first deal was not furnished. Okay, okay. Our first deal, the rent was well over twenty thousand. Let's just call it twenty thousand, and then we spent well over six figures furnishing everything, getting everything ready. Well over six figures. Yeah, and who's who's designing it? Who's putting it together? Like this is not a house. You're talking about a mansion. Like who are you trusting to go in there? (laughs) Yeah, we were lucky. We found like a local designer slash influencer. Actually, she was doing Airbnbs. So yeah, she was also a designer. That was one of her services. So we actually interviewed like three different designers and felt like the designer we picked, her name's uh, Tatiana Taylor Tate. We hired her and she was awesome. She was the most expensive out of the three. But as we all know, you probably don't usually want to go with the cheapest person. So she, she definitely went over and above and beyond and helped us get this place ready from start to finish. How long did it take to put it together? It took a month. That's not bad. Oh, it's quick. Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Imagine the holding cost. Imagine you're holding I know. three months, 24, <laughs> 20 yeah. plus. Okay. So once you got live, what is an example of the type of individuals that would come and stay here? Right. Cause I'm assuming it's not your mom and pop traveling to Kitchen Waterloo for a hockey tournament. Right. Like it's just not the audience. Right. What are average stays like? Like, do you find that in the Lux world, it's a little bit longer or a little bit shorter than normal Airbnbs? And then, yeah, ultimately, this all leads into <laughs> how much do you guys make on one of these things? <laughs> yeah, these are usually like executives that are staying actually with their family. Like our very first booking, like this guy was in the press. <laughs> like you, you see him like, yeah, we, we like Google, like who, who are these people? Like, yeah, like it was a real estate developer who's been in the media before, as an example. Um, so yeah, we're catering to high net worth individuals for sure. So some people are there visiting family, vacationing for like a week. Some people are there for business. For the odd time, we do get some people who are trying to have like just group 10 friends together and stay there for a couple nights. Those we try and avoid, to be honest. But yeah, it's similar. Like you get all types of people who are interested, right? What is like an average daily rate? Is like 2009 or something or? Yeah, exactly. Okay. What's the competition landscape like? Is it there's no listings? Is it only you guys that have listings? Which that means you have a monopoly. And also what are vacancies like as well? Like to my use question, was it just like two or three day stays? Are they staying for a month or two months? So vacancy is not as much of a problem. More shorter term. Like two weeks is probably the most we've had up to this point. And again, it's like this concept of failing forward, right? Mm-hmm. Like we started these properties in the summer and we were like making really good money. So there is definitely a seasonality to it. Yeah. So yeah, summer months are amazing. And then once you get into like the fall and winter, we started understanding the market. And that's like, yeah. oh, our projections are a little bit off right? When it comes to the fall and winter. So we've had to pivot in terms of dropping our daily rate and just making sure, again, we're not 
at least bleeding money and we're making a little bit, right? Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely a seasonality to it. And and same thing in terms of marketing, is it just like throw on Airbnb and then optimize your Airbnb listing or does it involve things like cold calling other companies, corporations to try to get people in and out? Good question. Yeah, we've actually tried to reach out to realtors, Mm -hmm. people who deal with luxury properties. We have tried to build relationships with them to see if they have clients that are moving to Vancouver, like kind of in transition, or maybe their clients building a home. They need a home for a while. So we have ventured down that avenue. We haven't had much luck, but definitely I think it's important to like try and build relationships with realtors because obviously they will have clients that need this type of property to stay at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you think about the entire Airbnb apocalypse or or whatever that people are kind of spinning and talking about now is like really public all over YouTube and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And I guess you can break that answer down into two questions. You think there's a different impact on Lux versus regular Airbnb? I think, yeah, right now everyone's feeling it. Like even in my portfolio in Hamilton, Burlington, there's a lot of competition. Yeah. For sure. You know, then the details come into play in terms of good photographs, like whether you're pricing right, whether you're making doing everything possible to try and appear in the first two pages of results like all those minor details matter right so yeah i think everyone's feeling it whether you're lux or or not lux maybe the ones that are maybe feeling it the most would be the cities that are more like seasonality like uh, tourism type of cities cottage places essentially cottage places might be feeling Uh it more especially if you're not like a lux cottage like you're kind of like middle of the row cottage I think those people are definitely feeling it. But then again, it's also if you're buying to Airbnb, it's probably, hey, did you buy at a good price to make the burn? Same thing with rental. Like we all know rent prices have gone up quite a bit, even from when I started at the beginning of the year. So did you pay too much rent? And then you're not at least able to break even, right? So Mm -hmm. those factors come into play. It's kind of like, did you negotiate or get money on the buy? Uh, now, same kind of stuff. Now, let me ask you this. Um, is arbitrage still a profitable strategy in Ontario, given rent increases and given ADR and occupancy overall macro view decreases? Is it still a viable strategy, in your opinion, in Ontario, in major cities like Hamilton, Barrie, um, so on and so forth? I think it's viable. You just have to know that you're not, you know, you're going to make money. You're just going to not make as much as a year ago. Yeah. And who knows what happens, right? Like, I think small operators who are dabbling in the space, like trying to get maybe like one property or two properties for cash flow, so to speak, I think they're going to find it a tough time. The people or I guess companies who are really actually trying to build a business will survive quote unquote Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day it's it's also a volume game if you have two it's very hard to make money but if you have 10 there's some economies of scale there and on that topic you said you had three lux out in vancouver and i think you said at some other point that you had six lux as a whole right where are the other three located we have three luxes and then i have basically like five duplexes so to speak that we manage and then We have another, actually, six apartments in Peterborough. That's kind of another model, but Mm -hmm. same idea. It's arbitrage, but that's all six units in an apartment complex. We're going to get into that because I know that's the model you also try to replicate now in the States, right? Like renting an entire apartment. But before we do, I want to just chime in on one thing real quick. It's important that you mentioned the big operators are going to continue to succeed or scale. Because I was watching your TikTok, one of the things that you said, you never mentioned it on this podcast yet, so I'll mention it for you, through tips to help with your SEOs on on Airbnb. And you're probably obsessed with with things like this is changing your pricing three times a day, right? Because Airbnb likes to see people playing around with the listing, filling out every single detail on your Airbnb, no empty spaces in your listing to help with SEO optimization. Get as many reviews as possible in the beginning, even if it means that like, look at it as a marketing cost. If you lose a bit of money in the first two, three, four weeks, whatever, that's fine. But you want to just get reviews through the door. Like, people don't know that stuff. That is such micro, small details that when I'm watching, I was like, shit, 
if this is just through tips, like, are there a book of a hundred tips that I'm not like executing properly? Right. So you kind of need to be obsessing with these small details to outperform the rest of the market, which is why like everyone might be feeling it, but obviously the smaller operator is going to feel much more because they don't implement any of these. Yeah, exactly. And and again, that's where like, I feel again, like social media, like everyone paints a rosy picture of, Hey, you're going to make a ton of money, but you know, once you get into the thick of it, there's always challenges, right? And obviously right now the challenge is not too many people are booking. So being attentive to these minor details, I think is definitely going to help your business. So like, yeah, when I see people like, I see even people like wholesaling Airbnb arbitrage deals now. And, you know, I hope buying those deals, like, you know, I don't know. They're not just buying one or two to, you know, and think they're going to be financially free from, yeah. from those yeah. one or two deals. Cause I just don't feel like that's, it happens that way. Right. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And someone once said to me that as a landlord in Ontario, honestly, when you're arbitraging to someone else, like to an arbitrager that's going to go and turn around and put on Airbnb, I don't know what that title is officially called, but a lot of the downside, there is a lot of downside for the landlord as well. There's a lot of pluses, which is your property is well-maintained and you have a really good tenant quality. But realistically, at any point in Ontario, for the most part, we could end these leases and there's not a whole lot of recourse that a lot of landlords would go through, right? So hopefully that's kind of a protecting factor for a lot of people that got into arbitrage that maybe shouldn't be. But I did want to touch on one other thing that Austin said, which is just kind of being obsessed with Airbnb, right? So the same thing goes for whether you're flipping, whether you're in real estate investing, long-term rentals, whatever the strategy is, once you get obsessed, you start to know more and more about like every single part of it, how to optimize your systems and so on, right? So tell us about the third business, because what you guys have essentially done is sure you've got your long-term rental portfolio, that's fine, but you're essentially doing Airbnb, but within Airbnb, you're doing kind of the city, the smaller, like the five or six that you have there, then you're doing Lux. And then what's the third business model that you kind of just mentioned? Yeah. So that's apartment, like basically doing Airbnb in apartment buildings. So these could be a sixplex and you're like, Hey, I'll do a master lease and and rent out all six. And then you don't have to worry about as a landlord, you don't have to worry about minor repairs and maintenance. You don't have to worry about anything. Usually like a rent check every month and it's hassle-free, right? So yeah, in Peterborough as a test project, this was a 31 unit apartment building that was like rebuilt from the studs up. So these are like beautiful loft apartments, just off of Kijiji ad, again, got hold of the owner of the building. And uh, yeah, pitched them the, the idea. We're like, hey, we wanted to do like, we want to rent six of your 31 uh, and do uh, short-term rentals. He was a bit hesitant at first, but you know, we had a meeting, walked them through what we do. Um, so yeah, we, we set up like six Airbnbs in the heart of Peterborough, basically. So that's the business model. It's like, again, economies of scale. When you have 10, 15, 20 units within a building, obviously your, your cleaning costs are lower. And also with the recession coming, most likely people aren't wanting or going to spend hundreds of dollars a night, like talking two, three, four hundred dollars a night on an Airbnb, but still will spend hundred, hundred fifty dollars a night yeah. in a nice Airbnb. And also we are trying to cater more so to like medium term furnished rentals with this apartment model. So people who are in town for work probably don't want to spend money on a two bedroom house, but they still have the budget to spend on like a apartment unit when they're in town for work. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the the concept. It's almost interesting if you can find a cleaner and handyman in that same building as well, right? So <laughs> step out and... That's another interesting thing is like, we thought, oh yeah, we would need a handyman, right? We have in all our other projects, but these apartment buildings are usually, they, they have property management in place. So we don't even need a handyman. Most of these apartment buildings have a system where you submit like a service request Mm -hmm. and then things get serviced. So really for us, it's like cleaning. That's really it. (laughs) As simple as it gets. Now let's let's, uh, quickly highlight your entry into the States. What attracted you to do arbitrage in the US? And how did you go about starting it up, pitching it? Because obviously it's one thing to do it in Canada, going to a new market, you almost have no credibility when you're starting off in a lot of the landlord's eyes there, right? So can you walk us through that? Yeah, took us good two, three months to get everything set up from the structure to 
getting a deal. We want to get into the States just because it's that much bigger of a market. There's that much more inventory. It's actually quite hard probably here in Canada to find someone that has a nicely renovated 31 unit building and that they're okay with you renting however many units, right? There's only so many deals I feel out there in Canada. Mm-hmm. And in Canada, we're you know a bit slower. Like most landlords probably don't even know about this model, for example. So US is a much more mature market. Again, a lot more opportunities out there. That's one reason why we want to expand down in the, in the US. And yeah, it took us like two months. And uh, what I was trying to say there before was, it's just get, kind of like getting on the phone again, right? Calling all these different apartment buildings that have vacancies, pitching them on on what we do. So yeah, we, we were lucky. We came across two pretty decent sized property management companies that gave us a shot with no credit history. Yeah, really, really no track record if you talk about the US. So yeah. Awesome. That's where your, your tech sales side skill sets coming into play. <laughs> exactly. Yep. That's where my experience is coming into play, for sure. Definitely learning sales is a, is a good skill, for sure. And what are the differences between Canadian market and US market for arbitrage or exact same skill set needed for both? I think exact same skill set. Yeah, exact same skill set. I think there's just more opportunity in the States. And again, we're still new down there, but so far it's the same business, same, mm-hmm. no additional tricks or whatnot, but... Because we are at a disadvantage because, again, we have no credit. Mm-hmm. Obviously, come across this issue. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. It's probably a little bit more due diligence with regards to like, I don't know, markets and like, sure, Canada, we have, we got Toronto, what do you have? Montreal, Vancouver, for Lux. Like, it's not, it's not, you're not going to put something up in Sudbury, right? It just doesn't make sense, or maybe it does, but whatever. The US has probably many more options. And then the due diligence that goes behind your research is probably a lot more as well, I'm assuming as well, right? Yeah, like right now in the States, we're really trying to dial in on the apartment uh, model. Okay. Like we're trying to scale up to like 100 units of apartments because again, we feel this is recession proof. Right. Like this is not the time to like go lux or go, you know, rent duplexes in the US to mm-hmm. do arbitrage. We really want to, we really believe in this apartment model. Gotcha. Now, has competition, is it any different in the States than Canada? Because in Canada, you guys, I would argue, are leaders in their arbitrage space, or at least I don't know if there's anyone doing it bigger, maybe institutional, but I don't even know if there's institutions doing it arbitrage. Like in the States, you go on YouTube, there's a million decent sized operators there who obviously know the tips and tricks as well. Has the competition, have you found it to be more challenging to get occupancy or is it you're having a lot of success so far? I think still early days to tell, but I mean, that's why the U.S. is so good. You have 50 states, you have like so much population there to warrant the demand, right? So yeah, there's definitely a ton of players. I mean, once we're in this space, at least the apartment side, I mean, you're obviously competing with like Sonder as an example, Mm -hmm. which is a publicly traded company, right? So yeah, there's probably thousands of arbitragers down in the States, but you know, I think we just have to stay focused, run our numbers, be confident in our numbers and just grow with patience, right? And do a deal at a time and make sure they're profitable before we add new deals. Now, last question here, before we get my, you will transition to the two final questions. What are your thoughts on expanding or have you guys thought about expanding into other countries or continents outside of North America? Yeah, that's the ambition okay. for sure. Once we have a good handle on the U.S., I think our next country or market we're very excited about is Dubai. Yeah, that's an ambition. Yes. We'll see if we get there. Dubai is very well, I guess we'll have you back on next year and you can talk about it once you already have your Dubai yeah. listing live. <laughs> yeah, that's a market where the, the real estate prices aren't too bad there. And you have Lux clientele coming in all the time. So like, that's super interesting, man. All right, Carson. So at this point in the podcast, we want to ask you two questions. The first is, where do you see yourself or your business going in the next five years other than Dubai? (laughs) Yeah, I think we just want to scale this business, right? That's the goal. And we're five years down the road. We're hoping for thousands of listings. Yeah, that's really the the goal. Okay. It's just massive scale, massive action, right? So we're trying to build like a eight figure business. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I guess for newer investors, and this is especially relevant in, in the Airbnb space, so we'll keep it to that. But for newer investors that are looking at this model and seeing the opportunity to make some cash flow, what kind of advice do you have to share with them? I think every business takes a lot of hard work. You don't get rich overnight. And so, yeah, I think just go in there knowing that you are starting a business. It's a very active business and that there, there are going to be challenges, right? It's not, again, what social media drums up to be in terms of it's profitable day one. Well, it is profitable day one, but there's challenges with everything. Mm -hmm. Just like right now, probably everyone is feeling the apocalypse, so to speak. So it's not always going to be roses and rainbows. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. And um, just like with any business, I think people expect you to launch a bunch of Airbnbs and you keep the money. Like if you really want to scale, you got to reinvest that money. It's not like you're paying yourself steadily all the time. You're putting it back into the business, right? Exactly. That's how you eventually continue to scale and grow and then live off tens of thousands of dollars a month. There's so much, as as you mentioned, Austin, there's so much, uh, there's so many arbitrages out there in the US, like those concepts also apply in Canada if you're starting out in Canada. Mm -hmm. So, you know, watch those YouTube videos, maybe pay for a course, yeah. get educated. So then that road is a bit easier. Yeah. I think it almost makes sense in the Airbnb space to have some sort of course coach or something like that, because a lot of people keep their secrets to themselves. There, there are a lot of secrets, small things that aren't necessarily super publicly available or to find it, you got to dig super deep to find, to find those tips, right? Uh, and that means sitting through hours of the same content until you find a golden nugget. So it almost makes sense to just kind of fast forward that. But Karsten, really appreciate you jumping on, man. You're up to super impressive things. It's crazy that you've only been in this game for two years, but like the ambition is so high. If people want to connect with you, follow your journey. I mean, I don't know if you're looking for JVs, either on the Airbnb side or private lending, whatever it is. How could they best do so to keep in contact with you? Yeah, I think Instagram is probably easiest. It's just uh, my first and the last name, Karsten Howe. You can easily find me there. I'm trying to post about my journey there as much as possible. So yeah, and your content... Right at least in the Canadian side, very unique, right? Like, again, like just looking, I see you're on the TikTok grind now. It, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It's like content I don't see out there on the Canadian side for uh, real estate investors. So make sure to give Carson a follow for sure. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. If you guys enjoyed this episode, like, subscribe, five-star rating, share it with a friend. Um, it helps bring great guests like Carson out on the podcast. Until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.